if British population understood the legacies of empire, yeah. you understand that I can be British and Nigerian. Yeah, 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 yeah. Welcome to Surviving Society. This season's broad theme is how we continue to deal with the legacies of empire. Hello, everyone, and happy Valentine's Day, guys. Wait, 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 wait. Ah! Oh, ah! the Valentine's kicks! Tiso's got some Valentine's kicks on. Are they a special oh. edition Valentine's Yeah, of course. Cool, so. It's really like rocking the holiday. Off. I thought you were off I Air drank, Max, I by dragged the them up for Valentine's Day. Oh, thank you, T. We're really excited to be joined by Karim Mitha. Okay. Tell us about your research. So my research is looking at identity and mental health amongst uh, Muslims in Scotland. And I really want to look at this intersection between um, how do people construe their sense of groupness, social identity, solidarity, resilience, and in, in a climate where you're not really... Um, like, and as a proportion of the population, it's one and a half percent of the population, but I feel it's got um, huge untoward attention drawn to the community. So I kind of want to understand how they build this idea of groupness, group solidarity, identity and resilience, and how does that factor in with um, coping with mental health and well-being? So that's generally what the themes of my research are looking at. So how, how are you framing identity? How are you conceptually framing that? I'm looking at in terms of social identity approaches. So the idea of... Um, being a community, groupness, social uh, uh, solidarity. So I come from a social psychology angle. So I'm looking at how um, do you construe ideas of ethnic identity, national identity, racial identity, religious identity, um, particularly for Muslims um, in the UK in general. It's often said that they see their religious identity as almost their primary marker. So you can talk about things like I'll be like Pakistani or British, but for them it's being Muslim that seems to matter the most. But that's because yeah. it's the, do- the doctrine of the Ummah, isn't it? Like exactly, yeah. yeah. So I think, but no one looks at it from a social psych perspective. Yeah, so you talk about within the theological perspective of the Ummah, but what does it actually mean? Like, can I literally be like a Muslim here in the UK? And what does that mean to me um, connecting to, say, a Muslim in Indonesia or Saudi Arabia or, or um, Ethiopia? Like, But still, there's this imagined community. And Benedict Anderson talks about this imagined community. So I kind of wanted to explore but that more. Dig a yeah. bit deeper. Yeah. The idea of it, it disappears, right? Yeah. Because once you start seeing it, it disappears. For example, certain mosques in London were banning African Muslims from yeah. attending mosques. Yeah. So you have to be either of Arab descent. Yeah. So there, there are hierarchies within. There is that. hierarchies, yeah. and I think because the South Asian community tends to be the one that's been more established um, within the UK, they've tended to be the ones who set up the mosques, set up the rules, set up the functions of how things are. And now um, you'll see with increasing migration, even the younger generation who doesn't grow up speaking Urdu they go to the mosque and yet the people are speaking Urdu. They don't understand. They don't connect with the languages. If you're coming from African countries or Middle Eastern countries going to like an Urdu-speaking mosque, you're not going to really connect. So you're right. These are aspects where that theoretical notion of sharedness and solidarity can kind of break down. Mm-hmm. And then you'll have these like Turkish mosques and Bengali mosques. And it is interesting in a community that prides itself on being cohesive. You actually are like segregating into ethnic lines. But this is something I think that's always been... I think it's always been a, a myth from mm. the kind of Islamic community. So historically, the Umayyad dynasty was Arabs, mm, right? Mm. And the whole thing was that he conquered in Africa, yeah. treated second-class subjects. Yeah. And then when the Abbasid took over, yeah, it was yeah. the idea that they were multiracial yeah, yeah. that got them in. Even though they were still Arabs, the idea that they were willing to share power with other groups. Yeah, yeah. And so that, that idea has always persisted that there was a kind of unity across the board, but it's never has to be in that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that, so that's where it came, yeah. it came from Arabia, and then it spread out into the uh, rest of the world. <laughs> and I think it's the idea of, well, 
if you convert, then it's going to be okay. Yeah, and I no. think this idea of like, well, okay, we can accept all these different ethnic groups because there's a sharedness of like Islam and that's supposed to be mm-hmm. seen as a common unifying factor. And you can see like the historical, like having that historical narrative really helps to bring people to buy into it these days, especially mm-hmm. if you're a marginalized community. You're going to look at it so what's going to make me feel secure in my mm-hmm. sense of self and identity. So you interviewed 80. Yeah. Um, Over 80, yeah. 80 Scottish Muslims. Muslims in Scotland, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And what would you say, like, if you could think of sort of three standout things yeah. that you found in your interviews and your research, what would those be? I mean, there's the gender issue, but I think it's the way that things can be genderized. So if you talk about the hijab, for example, people um, will see that as a form of oppression. But I found time and time and time again mm-hmm. that women were saying, well, actually, I never wore this before. I never bothered. But when I went to uni and actually felt all this discrimination against me and for me to feel that sense of empowerment, they mm-hmm. felt that they became secure. So that was something that's interesting because it's creating a counter narrative. So rather than seeing as a f- garment as a form of oppression, these a woman ha- said they made the choice to wear it later on in life. So that's quite interesting. That's such an important yeah. point as well because, I mean, you, you describe it as a counter-narrative and yeah. I hear what you're saying there. But actually, that is just that they're, they're the people that are wearing it. That's their narrative. Yeah, yeah. The, the other narrative has been perpetuated by people that are not wearing the hijab. Yeah, 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 right, um, yeah. And that is the narrative that dominates media, academic discourse exactly so that's so great that you've been able to just pull that out of the conversations and it's really it's really political and very important I think and and I think that's what makes it tricky to write (laughs) because when you you see these different themes you're like okay what should I focus on now Mm. and um, Islamophobia is another big one so we want to talk about um so I think how would you unpack that though? Because that's a big term there, right? Yeah. So some people would argue it doesn't exist, right? This is that is, a phobia? Yeah, so some yeah, people, yeah, some yeah. People literally, argue. the academics. Yeah. <laughs> it's what literally the, the academics yeah, yeah, yeah. will say. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. if you read the academic discourses, in, in particularly in Scotland, there's the idea of, like, where Scotland's distinct, there's no racism here, there's no Islamophobia here. Um, anything is just because we're so great as a country, we're so, like, secular, we're so civic that there's no issues here of Islamophobia. And and even if there are, it's just like one or two incidents. Don't we, we don't really care. So like you can literally, and I think it's interesting because if you look at Scarlett Harris's work um, from University of Glasgow, she literally writes a critique of this. She says, in a book on Scotland's Muslims, the authors say there's no Islamophobia. They writ- literally have like pages of stuff written, Islamophobic incidents, but they're calling them isolated cases. I think if a mosque begins firebombed, that's not a, like, that could be an isolated case. But when you see like patterns or where young Muslim women mothers are literally taking it upon themselves to conduct research, independent research in their own schools because they feel their child has been discriminated. So Samina Dean um, came up with this report. She interviewed a hundred children in schools in Edinburgh and she looked at instances of Islamophobia and she found that Muslim students by and large were saying that they were experiencing visible aspects of racism, subtle racism and everyday microaggressions. Um, And this is something you don't want to talk about. Like what the hell's microaggressions? People feel like that's just a made up term that doesn't really exist. So you have instances of experience of Islamophobia. You've got Anna Sarwar and Hamza Youssef who sit on two different political parties who are in the last year have actually been very open and saying, well, 
they've been experiencing aspects of Islamophobia that they feel they wouldn't be elected in senior positions if it weren't for the um, cause Scotland's political system. You rank candidates, but you also are ranked on a party list. And the, them two came on a party list rather than an actual, like, directly elected mm-hmm. list. So you can see how, even though they're in the system, they're still talking about experiences with Islamophobia. I think it's how Scotland positions itself to England, right? Yeah. So even like you just talking about the voting system. So Scotland has a form of PR. Yeah, yeah. Which it seems fair and yeah. just and yeah, very yeah. modern. Yeah. England has... From international audiences, what is a PR? Proportional representation. Yeah. Which is where... Voting system. Well, there's different types. I'm not too... We've got party list system. So they've got the... Uh, directly elected, but also on the party list system. Okay. So some seats are elected for directly... Um, for who you vote for, like in England, and others mm. are, well, you vote for the party, and then you basically go down the party candidate list. list by proportion. So if a party got 35%, then you just go down the list um, and allocate those seats accordingly to my party. <laughs> but it's like the way they... So England is the cruel... It is, yeah. Racist. Racist <laughs> part. And, we, yeah. and obviously England has the bulk of migrants, uh-huh. so that's where racism is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Scotland is the kinder... Yeah. more friendlier but also oppressed by the English yes. so they have a history because it's that, it's that um, narrative of mm-hmm. well England came in colonised us in 1707 mm-hmm. and then so they con- controlled us from then on and so we're victims and I'm not uh, you know um, belittling that narrative obviously there's huge inequalities when you uh when you talk about Scotland and their history, etc., but I think currently now, I think this idea of well, um, we want to be distinct, we want to be different, and that sort of—I um, mean, it wasn't a surprise. The timing of that independence belt was timed for the Battle of Bannockburn, so they time it to mark these issues of national identity to build in this um, aspect of like patriotism. But when I like, so when I was up there, one of the key things you see is how they can do that. So Scotland has a clear idea mm. of who they are yeah. being compared to the English, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So to the point where I think things like in the popular consciousness, like uh, Braveheart and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, so yeah. they take that to heart, right? Yeah, so yeah, when you go there and yeah. they speak about the Scottish culture, they all talk about Robbie Burns. And yes, yeah, they, yeah. They Burns it, Night was Burns just a few night, weeks yeah. ago. Yeah, yeah. They take it very seriously. Uh-huh. So I think one of the first presents someone got me was a, a, a book of poems in, uh, in, Sc- in old Scottish language. Mm-hmm. And they take it very seriously yeah, compared yeah. to the English, who don't seem to be quite have a clear, ident- clear notion of their own identity. I was going to yeah. ask you that. I was like, is it like a, is it like an acceptable nationalism? Because I feel like if people are overtly nationalist, well, for me, right. in, so, in England, I'm like, oh. So, so what's happened is the English were the <laughs> English English let the far. What happened yeah. was the English yeah. let, the, let the far right co-opt their, their national symbols, right? right? And you also have to remember the people that who were oppressed, Scotland, Ireland, so you have a sense of being of themselves, right? So did so does Scotland, their national... So you're not necessarily right-wing if you're nationalist? No, because it's this, uh, this civic nationalism, and I think in England it's this how to be seen as English has been co-opted to be sort of a racialized term, mm-hmm. whereas in Scotland, um, by and large, even my respondents, they admit that they're, well, they've used range of saying I'm British Pakistani or I'm Scottish, and I think it has been to do with were you born there, and if you're born there, but then by definition, by all purposes, you would be seen as Scottish. Yeah. But what's quite scary, though, is, so, obviously we spoke about this before we started, the sectarian balance, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So if you, because when we spoke to Luke, right, so the idea of being 
it's between Protestant and Catholic. The Catholic probably is um, Celtic, isn't it? Right. So Catholic is associated with the Irish struggle, mm. and it's associated with multiracial solidarities, yeah. right? So it, they tend to be. You could be racist, but you wouldn't. You, you wouldn't know. Yeah, yeah. However, yeah. the right is associated with the UVF and paramilitary groups, and they tend to be right wing. And you can be racist because they're linked to Combat 18 and other far-right groups, right? And that's a football hooligan. Well, it's sectarian, but Combat 18 are linked to the UVF and all these kind of far-right groups, right, who align themselves with, like, the Rangers Mm, and Protestant Protestant Party. But they could be racist on the left, but because they're subsumed with the idea of Irish nationalism, which is associated with third-worldism, which is associated with uh, international global struggles of the global south and all around the world... You, you can't see those racist yeah. inverted, com- inverted commas. So yeah. it's, it's, it's a funny thing. So would you say that this stuff has come out, participants, these like, notions of Scottish nationalism, Scottish identity, how do they... So I started looking into this to see just whether, just because they're being in Scotland, and I think it's interesting when I started this work, I was just constantly being told, oh, well, Scotland doesn't have a problem with racism, and it's because they're Scottish, they're going to say they're fine, and everything's going to be hunky-dory, and your just work is just to confirm that. And I felt, well, you're trying to put some sort of agenda into my work anyway. Um, but, yeah, so they may say that they're Scottish, but that doesn't necessarily negate their experiences with racism. You could see you're British, and just the fact that, like, we're all in this room and we're saying we're British doesn't mean that, you know, I'm not going to say people aren't going to be racist to me. Like, mm-hmm. it's these are two distinct phenomena, whether what I personally ascribe my sense of identity versus what other people um, feel and do they believe that my identity that I hold is the same? Can like would someone consider you to be British? Maybe, maybe not. They say, "What are you doing here? Go back home." Like all that sort of thing happens. So, um, and did your yeah. did your participants narrate this? Did they I... they talked about their experiences of? Um, I think one of them very cleverly he said to me when I asked him, "So how would you describe yourself?" He said, "It would depend on who I talk to." So if I was descri- if I was talking to you, so he's talking to me, and he said, "Well, for you, I would say I'm Pakistani, but if I was talking to if I was going for a job interview, I'd say I'm Scottish through and through." And the way that they position themselves depending on who the audience is, um, and I think that caused me to reflect on my own positionality as a researcher. And I think this is something where the discourse and and the academic sphere is completely lacking because it's usually done by white middle class men who go into communities and say, "Well, tell me about your experiences with racism." You're gonna you're gonna like say everything is fine. You're gonna say no problem. And I think that's sort of where the narrative comes from. And I was struck by the. Um, classness as of it as well so when i spoke with doctors a lot of them um men would say well we've got no issue but then i spoke to women doctors yeah we've got an issue literally one woman said to me she used to wear a shawar kameez so that's a typical pakistani dress um one day she wore a uh dress from bhs and she said the british home stores, uh, british home stores yes um, <laughs> well, i think it's closed down now actually yeah, yeah, yeah. so yeah so um she said she wore a dress to work and she had her receptionist staff say oh you're dressed normally today <laughs> so I think the, and the look on your face Chantal, says everything because like you're rolling your eyes but then what are the implications of that statement here she is as a as a as a woman, as a doctor, and then just she has this power dynamics, but here her receptionist is telling her you're dressed normally. So what does that even mean, just because she chose to change her style of dress one day? It builds up over time, doesn't it? Yeah. That, that sort of, I mean, I don't even think that's a microaggression. I think it's aggressive, to be honest. Yeah. I think it's aggressive othering, like, within social settings. Mm. And, like, I guess, is this where the mental health thing comes in? Like, that stuff builds up Yeah, time. I think that's exactly what it is. And I think what it was interesting, because I've been asked... 
uh, several times, like, what does discrimination have to do with mental health? And I just am struck by that blatant, like, ignorance of that statement, because you're right. These things build up over time. They add up to what this term of, like, allostatic load. How much can you physically bear of being, like, patronized, demeaned, having your issue, like, your perspective brushed off? Um, a lot of, uh, one respondent, she said to me, she says, um, she's a teacher, and she said that, it wears down on you every day and you go into this, it's like a battle. So over time, these subtle things build up and build up and it causes you to doubt your sense of self, causes you to doubt your self-esteem. Are you equal as other people? Are there degrees of equality? And you kind of wonder, well, there probably are degrees of equality. Um, and you think of, well, we've got Equalities Act. Technically, we shouldn't have discrimination on race, religion, ethnicity. But the fact that these people are willingly telling me their experiences all, all the time of... Um, these everyday subtle things. I think one person, he said that he feels, um, he compared himself to like, he talked about um, if you go shopping and you have like the organic store stuff at the top of the shelf. And he said for him being in Scotland, he felt he was like the low cost Tesco value kind of stuff. And here he is someone equating his own sense of stuff to being like a low brand store bought like value based product. And to me, this idea of like, and he said in Scotland, he feels that. And I think a lot of, the respondents who moved from England to Scotland, they were saying things like they never felt as much discrimination um, as living in England as compared to Scotland, which I was really surprised by. I'm um, yeah. So my mum taught me that it doesn't matter where I go, I just mm. be myself, right? Mm. So I, I don't care where I go. And I know that people are going to behave differently yeah. when I walk into a room. So they, yeah. they always do. Yeah. So it's about, in relation to mental health, I, even though our parents would, well, Let's talk about my parents. Even though my mum would never say it in those terms, she prepared me to have resilience. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and coping strategies to deal with people like this. Yeah. And it doesn't mean acquiescing. Yeah. Sometimes it means just walking in a room yeah. and just saying, here I am. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. there's been several incidents when I've done it in Scotland, walking into a room and people have reacted in a bad way. What are they going to do? Yeah. I said, beat me up. But I think it's interesting because, like, there's a two aspects here we've got um a racialized aspect of mental health and mm. we've got like to prevent stuff so uh, if i can i just yeah, want to talk it's, about it's these two angles it's, yeah I'm not, not, i don't want to take away from your experience team yeah. but and there is different sorts of racialized and race experiences that you will experience in the every day but it is mm. different 100 no but because like literally if, if you were to go to say someone they'd put the stereotypes on you if you were to push back against something, people say, oh, here's an aggressive black man. Yeah. And then oh, what's yeah, going to yeah. happen? They'd yeah. say you're going to be like psychotic or whatever have you. So these are the labels that people and, draw and, on you. And, yeah. and this is what happens. So yeah. automatically they have a perception of what you're going to be. Yeah. Right. So on my basis, so they, they would treat me that I'm going to be aggressive. Yeah. So when I'm not aggressive, they're like, well, so you're normal. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, but that term normal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, yeah but it's, it's, interesting, it's interesting yeah. to see the, how people change, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I, I, yeah, and, and sorry, so, so when I, some of the Asian mates, I, I, guys I knew up there, he was one guy, he was particularly, he was rich. His dad mm. owned lots of properties in Edinburgh. And that matches the stereotype of what they think an Asian should be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's rich. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he works hard, he's industrious. And so yeah. he was okay. Yeah. But what I tended to find was people of colour. Asian, the blacks tended to stay together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they ne they rarely had white mates. Some white mates would drift in and out. Yeah. But they tended to see the group I knew anyway were, were a mix of Asian and uh, African being descent mm. in one area. And then slightly differently was the Africans would associate by themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
which is what African Nigerian. Just I don't know what where they go. Just just Africans were just separate from everyone else, and yeah. it was just a weird to see. Mm-hmm. And coming from London, yeah, where everyone's more, it's more it seems a bit more mixed, yeah, or on the surface, yeah. But to go up there, I'm like, wow, this is on the surface. This is very weird. Yeah. And I think we were talking earlier when uh, when we before we started the podcast, we talked about in Glasgow. So they've got yeah. really concentrated areas of like Pollock Shields and Pollock Shaws, which are very Asian area. But now you've got Queens Park, where lots of Eastern Europeans are coming in. And I think um, there's a term that's called the ethnic density effect. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it mm-hmm. by Shaw, two thousand twelve, and he basically says, well, um, it's almost like a protective factor. You go to where people are like you because then you're not going to feel like you're attacked. It gives you this so uh, sense of social bufferness. There's people who understand you, understand the same discourse course you're using understand the same like culture um so bec- it's almost ethnic density is a protective factor oh in God, a way that's, so, that's brilliant yeah. Yeah. Like, that ethnic density is fundamental to my yeah. life yeah. like having lived in spaces yeah. where you don't have any ethnic density and you're yeah. in every day yeah, yeah, yeah. is a structural or micro it is it is progression yeah. for my mental health i cannot live in those places again i will yeah, yeah. not live in those places again yeah i mean can and you imagine if like i've literally been asked like can you speak english or like can you prove you can write <laughs> And I'm just like, are you seriously? And this is like, you're laughing. And I'm just like, what the fuck? (laughs) Yeah. And this, and you're like, how do I even respond to a comment like that? And like, what gives you the right to even think that's a normal question to ask? And I'm just, yeah. Who said that to you? <laughs> I, I can't really name it, shame, but I'm just saying know, that I just these are types of experiences of everyday microaggressions that happen, and even I think it's even more stronger than the aspect of where do you come from, which I think is hugely problematic in itself. Mm. Um, but these are the questions um, and experiences that people have to go through on a daily basis. Yeah, I think it goes beyond. I think sometimes people, and these are particularly like anti-racist, proper leftist socialists don't necessarily like it when we talk about microaggression yeah, and no, say no, it's no. a distraction. Yeah. I always push back against that because I really believe that these microaggressions tell us a lot more about what's happening within the state in general, like structurally, ideologically. Yeah. If someone thinks it's okay to say yeah. to me, um, what are you doing here? Or can you speak? Or like, yeah. you're doing a PhD. Yeah, Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Like, if someone thinks that that's okay in this given... I think it, when you those microaggressions give you the kind of framework and the tools to kind of pull apart that notion of liberal tolerance, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so you realise, so you realise, so... so liberal tolerance for white people. But, yeah, like, but it's like that white feminism stuff. It's like yeah. exactly like, oh, well, white feminists will say, well, we've struggled and everything, but you can see that they're the ones almost like pulling up the ladder behind them yeah, yeah, by yeah. saying like, okay, well, we've struggled and no one else is going to have a problem anymore. And like, mm-hmm. but no, you've just created space for yourself. What about like the black queer woman mm-hmm. um, talking about intersectionality and all yeah, that stuff? Yeah, like there's yeah. literally, you're not creating space for other people who may have different views than you, who may occupy similar identities than you, but may have a difference of opinion. And they're experiences are going to be a lot different than, say, a middle-class white woman. Mm-hmm. Just thinking about, in terms of your participants yeah. and your research um, in general, I mean, it's really, really, like, I find it difficult talking about this stuff. Not because it affects me personally, yeah. just because I feel like I've got no, can't do anything to control it. And I yeah. just, I see, I've seen friends, I've seen colleagues go through it. Yeah. Thinking about um, post-9-11 UK yeah. and prevent and all yeah. these different structural Islamophobic yeah agendas basically did your participants talk about those things and how the state and interpersonal relationships have been affected by wider global conflict and just general racism that's embedded in our political 
political rhetoric, the state, yeah. all that stuff. It's hard that... Um, I mean, you spoke with Rihanna Walcott on mm. one of your previous podcasts, and I think that's a fantastic because her book, Color of Madness, really talks about the mm. racialization um, and experiences of people of color entering the mental health system. And in The Guardian, a few days ago, they talked about, uh, they. it was about a black woman talking about her experiences and in going into therapy, and she was, the therapist was white, and she talked about the almost cultural values being prescribed to things. Um, and... I think this is something that comes up time and again. So some of my respondents said that when they tried to access mental health uh, services, there was a lack of cultural competency. Uh, I was told that, um, again, from the doctor side of things and from people who actually access mental health care, that cultural competency doesn't seem to exist. They've talked about these issues. Um, they told me that we've been talking about these issues for 10 and 15 years ago. So the fact you're here doing research on this shows we've had no movement at all in these conversations. It's a big problem when you're going to, say, a Muslim woman goes to see a therapist and automatically the first thing she's asked is, are you going to be forced marriage? Are you going to have to go through FGM and things like that? Um, as a Muslim man, the fact that you like maybe have a beard or something that could be and that could be seen as an element of radicalization. Oh my God, um, yeah, I didn't even think, like going yeah. into the room, just being like, I feel yeah. low, yeah, 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 and then just in that minute, yeah, like being othered and being assumed yeah. to be occupying a certain position. Oh, that's just Yeah, disgusting. so I, I talked about this with, with my students on Tuesday and I gave them the example of um, if it's a white person going to therapy and, she's, and they say that, oh, I turn to my faith and gives me strength and coping, that's going to be seen as normal. Now, if you put a Muslim person saying that, I turn to my faith, gives me strength and coping, alarm bells is going to ring and now we've got like prevent going yeah, on and that. yeah. Do you think the institution... Mm is still looking at the kind of East Oriental gaze, right? Yeah, yeah, very much so. So they're still, <clears throat> so they're still seeing the East as some kind of, something to be tamed. Yeah, and and, like, and to be understood. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very much seen as an other, and I think that who actually produces knowledge about this population, mm-hmm. it's very hard that someone who comes from a sociological in group actually uses social theory to talk about what they're seeing. I mean, you talk, you mentioned you spoke with Nasser Amir. I think he's a great example mm-hmm. of uh, someone who's actually as a sociologist talking about social issues affecting race and equality and diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, there are several other academics um, as well who talk about the Katie Sean, for example, but looking at it in higher education spaces. So I think that it only ends up being like people like us who have to push the boundaries a bit, but imagine mm-hmm. the pushback we also experience. So I think, and that's a struggle because on the one hand, you've got your community who says that, oh, that's great, you're doing work in this area, we need the research out there. And then you've got, on the other hand, you have people who say, well, there is no evidence gap because there's, the, I think I mentioned this to you, that people will say there, there's no evidence gap of inequality. They so just think, well, have you actually read any papers? Like literally the House of Commons produced a briefing report, um, came out on the 24th of January, and it actually looked at by a religious group. Um, it said that Muslims actually have the lowest recovery rate in IAPT. So those of you who don't know, that's improving access to psychological therapies. Is if you go to a GP, you can self-refer to it. It says if you're feeling down, depressed. Um, it's a sort of a in-between step before going to serious mental health care. Um, So the treatment isn't working. You've got the lowest recovery rates amongst Muslim communities. Um, And even ethnic minorities tend to be, um, if you're white British, you're more like, you're twice as likely to actually get treatment than if you're from a a black or ethnic minority background. So there are huge inequalities. Um, And the fact that we can't even talk about the uh, racist nature of this is a problem in of itself. But, But as in all discourses of race so i feel within communities yeah. we understand that right yeah yeah so one of the things is don't like 
don't get sectioned. One of the people yeah, said, don't get sectioned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. you're not coming back out. Yeah, yeah. But it's... So it's my experience yeah. is... So I had someone I know, he was sectioned himself. Mm. And I, so I had two, two friends, one black, one white. Mm. The white guy got replaced and rehoused. The black guy, he's still in yeah. the institution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For the same, for the same thing, schizophrenia. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you, you see that disparity. And like I said, that's, that's only anecdotal, but as people within the community, we understand that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you either end up in a mental institution or prison. Yeah, I think there, there was a, the ESOP study by um, Afirin and colleagues in 2006, and they looked at whether this could be, is it a race thing or is it just a ethnic thing? And they found out that actually, if you look at rates of schizophrenia in um, the Caribbean countries, it's the same as here. Uh, so the only issue could be well, it's because otherwise, if it was a racing, you'd expect to see it more. But you got, the only reason you're saying that, so even if the prevalence rate is the same in two different countries, but you're actually seeing black people in this country being more diagnosed with schizophrenia, then you know there's something else going on. So you talk about how are the systems being um, working, how are they being diagnosed, how are they being picked up. So there's a huge racialization of mental health which takes place in that context. And the fact you said that. Um, two people, a white person, a black person, diagnosed with the same condition, who's going to get the, the better treatment outcome. Mm-hmm. Like I said, and it's, it's, a, it's a weird thing to see. Yeah. And then when you go to those institutions, yeah. the people that you see in there yeah, yeah. are mainly, mainly ethnic minorities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, yeah. Is, which is a weird thing to see. Yeah. I didn't expect to see that. And so the home has been knocked down, but to see people, and I think to myself, like, there's a lot of, there's not a lot of white people here. Yeah. Which is weird. Yeah, yeah. Because, like I said, well, proportionally, we make up a smaller part of the population. Yeah, right? yeah, we do. But then at the same time, we've got, like, um, I think for, in the Muslim community, you've got so many um, qualified uh, Muslim psychiatrists, psychologists. Um, there's a huge range of these people who are trained in mental health care. Um, and I think it's they have to be in the system in order to see if they see a patient like them. So one of the questions I asked was, well, uh, do you think your patient would prefer to see someone who comes from the same ethnic background to you? So this concept of ethnic matching. Um, yes. It was interesting that I didn't see, th- I mean, there was differences. Some people would say it didn't matter. Some people said that um, they felt it would be better. The doctors would say, well, they treat everyone the same, which is obviously they have to do that. Um, but when I asked people with lived experience, they said, it would depend on the condition. As long as someone had a shared sense of understanding, it didn't jump to the gun of like, oh, you've got arranged marriage, FGM, or it became radicalized. As long as someone didn't use those three things and actually approach them on an individual person level, they thought they could open up to them. That's that, that's interesting and obviously yeah. shows like clear like ethnic differences because I'd be interested to know like how different that would be, for example, for black, with black women. Yeah. Like, yeah, I know yeah. that it's really, like for me and like some of my peers, like, it's really important to have a... It is because they get it. They understand where you're coming from. You can't speak to someone who doesn't come from like a working class background. Expect them to understand the challenges you have of like working and doing a PhD and raising kids and all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. that whole aspect of your lived experience is going to be so different. And you need to have someone who actually understands the same language. So if I talked about like Pagol and Majnun or Juju, like these are different concepts. You need someone (laughs) who's going to understand these things (laughs) and what they mean. You're like, you can't just speak to some like random Mm -hmm. white person who just like, well, I don't know what you're saying. And yeah, yeah. it can help sometimes. So did you find that, I mean, and I'm sort of racking my brain back to when we um, spoke with NASA about their um, quantitative work on racism in Scotland. Mm. Mm. And they had some really like 
shocking study. I've what, yeah, with, with, so, with the police force and stuff like that. Just yeah. showing that basically like ethnic minorities were more likely to have experienced. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's though, a reporting issue. Yeah. There's very much so. I asked my respond, uh, respondents and even anecdotally people who would you report something if you felt it was Islamophobic and by and large people said they wouldn't report because they felt nothing's going to be done. Um, if you look at the Scottish Social Attitude Survey, this was done that's in, what it was, yeah, yeah. 2015. It said that two thirds of Scotland uh, feels they don't want immigration there. They felt, I think it was over half said that um, more Muslims would actually dilute the Scottish national identity. Um, they said that um, hate crimes have actually been on the rise since uh, 2017. And this is corroborated by the Home Office statistics from a UK level. You can actually see that hate crimes, religious and racially based hate crimes have actually gone up post-Brexit. So what I was going to say, so I yeah. would kind of add on to that break. So given in that post-Brexit moment, given that they we could see an independent Scotland. Yeah. Did that this idea of an independent Scotland, this a true a true Scottish a Scottish nation? Yeah. Did your respondents talk about that or talk to that the idea that this could be? They're not gonna get. They're not gonna get independent Scotland without no. Muslims. No, no, no. <laughs> like, do, you know, like, do you know what I mean? Like, it's interesting because they wanted to, I think, because they lost the independence bill, they, I think people were trying to, I guess, find blame. Is it the inter- is it the students who were here who are eligible to vote? Is it like ethnic minorities? Mm-hmm. If you look at Quebec during the 1995 referendum for independence, um, the leader of Quebec at the time blamed the loss on Quebec independence on ethnic minorities. So you can <laughs> see like how... <laughs> Basically, oh, so they'll blame us. They'll blame you. They'll blame you. So you can see how different states um, will blame different groups of people if they don't get the result they want. I don't know what's going to happen. Um, I mean, Nicola Sturgeon wants to have another independence vote. Mm-hmm. Boris is saying no. Um, I have no opinion about her either way. I'm quite ambivalent about her. To be yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I, I have no opinion. I I can't. I don't but, know if she's done anything good or bad. I can't. I can't comment on that. But, but I think she's a great um, politician, and the fact she yeah. stood up to Theresa May, she stood up to Boris. So I think, she, on that sense, as a politician, she's a very strong personality, and she actually stands up for what she believes is um, Scotland's wishes, um, what she believes them to be. But, but who's in those? Like, yes. Who's included in yes. those? Yes. What what Brexit's kind of predisposed is the idea that. There's no such thing as, of the, as British. It's realised that this is four yeah. nations, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. so these nations might start to secede from this union. Yeah. And if that does, in Scotland, and it becomes that kind of nationalist place, Muslims are like the fifth column, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And if they're the fifth column, like, what do you do? Going back to European history, Europe has a history of expelling who people who they perceive as that yeah, fifth exactly. column. Yeah, yeah. So... It, today it's the Muslims, tomorrow about the Jews, whoever yeah, will be. Yeah, know? and if you look historically, like there's always some other otherwise yeah. group which has taken the blame for something. So we had the Jews, and then we had even then we talk. You mentioned earlier to you so about sectarianism. It's interesting how like Irish were even seen in yeah. in Scotland's history as not being like not they should even be here, not being human. <laughs> Literally, I mean, you guys are familiar. The no blacks, no dogs, no mm-hmm. Irish kind of thing. So uh, no Asians as well. So this whole idea of who do you include in aspects of like whiteness. Um, and I think right now it's almost a struggle because you've got the Eastern European population who, I mean, Brexit was basically all about that. And then you've got a oh, racialized... And brown people. And non of yeah, course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But that gets lost in the discourse as well. People yes. think they're voting for Brexit to get rid of all the people like us, but then they don't seem to clock on that yeah. it's about something else entirely. So, so we've got two different population immigrant groups who are going to um, experience... Yeah, something very 
um, troubling in the next few years. Uh, again, this kind of hornetsness that's kind of been uh, kind of woken up with this kind of in this post post Brexit landscape. Yeah. So, Ireland, mm. Sinn Fein has won most of the votes. Yeah, so yeah, potentially yeah, yeah. this is it's a, a Catholic force there. And to and a counter balance would be a Protestant place, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you're seeing these things that I thought, well, when I, when you go to Scotland, you realise they were never dead, right? Mm. 1690, you go to Scotland, that's a big thing, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But you come to England, no one really cares. Yeah, so if you read, uh, Maureen McBride, I think, wrote uh, her PhD was on this sectarian division and the way that working class um, sort of still continue these aspects, the mm-hmm. Celtics and the Rangers. The, uh, so that whole aspect was just her whole research area, which really f- made a fascinating read. So when I've gone up there, so as we were speaking earlier, normally discourses of race get subsumed mm. within that. So yeah. My friends would never talk to me initially about race, but if you if you start off at sectarianism, yeah. So a guy I knew he was a Ranger supporter, mm. and he was uh, Protestant against Catholic. But once I probed him a bit deeper, he was anti-globalist. So he went out and fought like when the G eight were up there, <laughs> he went out and fought those guys. When you pushed a bit deeper, he realized his brother was part of Combat Eighteen, mm. and so he was firmly on the right. But those politics of race were very, very deep. You had to dig yeah, deep. Yeah. He, he'd be first, his first response would be against Catholics. Yeah, yeah. Which seems weird to an average person. Mm-hmm. But once you dig deeper, he was firmly on the right. And then when I did speak to him, his first words were, uh, I don't like Muslims or blacks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So did you find... I mean, obviously, you had your participants talking about everyday mm. microaggressions, uh-huh. but also talking about the importance of ethnic death density. They didn't mention that in they itself. Didn't, but they didn't mention as in being close to one another, being important. That's just something that you've taken away from. That's the... what I've taken away, because I, when I asked about their whole narrative and experience and life journey, that's sort of the themes that were coming up, talking about, well, who they turned to for support, wh- how they felt um, they were able to cope with certain circumstances. Um I mean, obviously, there are contrary narratives. Some people who experience severe issues of abuse and trauma, for them, um, that was with it, made within the community. They felt that maybe it wasn't supportive for them. But by and large, um, this idea of um, having that sense of belonging was quite helpful. And a lot of them literally said that like, for them, being Muslim was first and foremost. But then because they, uh, like I gave you that example earlier of the guy who said, well, it depends who I speak to. And the mm-hmm. fact that he already knew that to say it in that way, so depending who I speak to, I would answer differently, means that they're already creating this debate and internal monologue of they need to police themselves and their own answers. So in terms of self-care then, yeah, if... Did your were your respondents saying to you they found kind of uh, the community mm. as a, a place where they can as a site of resistance and resilience where they can learn these kind of coping strategies to deal with that kind of the daily microaggressions or is it something that that didn't come up at all or. Uh. I mean, because as I'm analysing the data, and that's sort of my whole uh, theme that I'm looking at in terms of like how does the community build solidarity <clears throat> and resilience. Um, it's interesting because you mentioned resistance, and I think if you look at uh, even ethnic minority communities tend to do a lot of um, community support initiatives themselves because they feel that the mainstream isn't going to support them, so they'll come up with classes on whatever the topic is. One of the things that I actually found quite interesting was 
the women in particular were saying things like, well, what we want is a community center. We want a social space. Instead, we're getting more mosques. So I think that's interesting. Like, is there... Oh, yeah. Yeah. So there's lots of mosques that are being built in Edinburgh, and the community, a Muslim community there is, like, quite small. Um, And in Glasgow, they've got loads of mosques as well. And it's interesting that the women, um, who you often seen as the transmitters of knowledge, um, transmitters of culture, were saying, well, we actually are advocating for more spaces to be ourselves, to be a community. We want community spaces, yet all we get is mosques. So that's kind of an interesting uh, intra-community debate that's happening. It reminds me of, um, thinking of like, the Toni Morrison um, quote, like, racism being a distraction mm. and racism distracting us from, like, our other aspects of our social lives. Like, that's not a direct quote, but that sort of thing. And, like, how... There's so many different intra-ethnic things that, like, yeah. we would love to talk about more on the yeah. podcast. It's yeah. like, there isn't a space to do that because the far right are in our room right now. Yeah. Does yeah. that make sense? <laughs> like, as in, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. that's such yeah. an important, yeah. like, finding, yeah. I think. The women are like, no, guys, yeah. like, we want some community space. Yeah. And, like, because we're just up against it in terms but, of our interpersonal, in terms yeah. of the government, in terms of the state, yeah. it's so hard in the everyday to, yeah... Because it, it, in understanding the intercommunity politics of it as well, so can is it okay for any mom to talk about certain issues within the mosque space? So if you're talking about, I don't know, divorced women or can even mo- women attend mosque, that's still a debate that's raging on. But then it's hard because you, you realize that as an in-group member, you want to talk and elucidate these issues. But I also have to be cognizant of, like, who's going to be reading this stuff and who's going to yeah. be, like, how is that information going to be used? Exactly. Yeah. Like, that's, the, that's the other yeah. thing. That's a really important point about intra-community politics is that... Yeah. Like, there's things that you want to talk about really seriously. Like, we were talking about um, patriarchy and sexism amongst our black peers. Mm. But, like, we can't always get in deep with that because you don't want people to, like... Jump on it. Jump on it. (laughs) White people be like, see, we told you, the blacks are like this. Yeah, you know, it's exactly... Because if I say that we've got mental health inequalities, literally it's been as, oh, Muslims have greater mental health problems, that's why they're radicalised. And a brown person said it. A brown person said it. He said it. He said it. He said it. It's true. Exactly, exactly. And he's one of them. And then what do you become? Like, such a job. I have to say, you're going to be like these people (laughs) or like the puppets or like pretty... Like, I don't know if I should say her name on like, like <laughs> but like these people who are basically <laughs> who are just like the puppets of these like uh, you, then you end up being a puppet yourself you're like but that's not what I wanted to be with the split between Shia mm. and Sunni yeah. was there much difference in the responses that you got from your questions or so I yeah so I interviewed I was able to interview people across the sectarian divides within uh, Islamic denominations so I had a lot of Sunni respondents I had some Shia respondents as well some of them were saying that they they, they didn't find an issue but I, I think I'd have to look into their class as well so they tended to be a bit more affluent so they're more likely to say there is no issue some were saying that we need to address sectarianism and I found that only from very few but that came from the Shia community as well it's interesting because when I Whenever I speak to it's mainly Sunni, the way they demonize the Shia, yeah, like, like insane stuff, yeah. like stuff that doesn't even seem to make sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And they would, and these people would claim to be quite rational. Yeah, yeah. But they yeah. would say stuff like they'll steal your wife. Yeah. So we see that across. I feel like we see that across all. I know. Like, no, but, but the way people like make up things in their head about groups of people. Yeah. I know, yeah. But because yeah. no one really speaks about that, like yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. you find like, and I'll be like. 
that's actually insane. Like what? Yeah. You, <laughs> no, no, I think because it's having understanding of the nuance that I think. So if you look at the history of migration of Muslims in Scotland, so it's a small community. So initially, you have a small group of people. They banded together by just being Asian. Mm-hmm. So you had like uh, Bashir Man's book talked about um, the new Scots, how people were like Bengali, Indian, Pakistani. They just banded together because that shared ethnic identity. Mm-hmm. But you used to get more and more groups of people and they sort of band together by, okay, no, we're Muslim, now we're like Shia Muslim. So it just happens as your population grows. So you sort of band by whoever's closest to you. And now they're seeing with this generation, people are trying to be more fastidious and trying to understand what this means by true Islam. So that's when you're seeing the sectarian issues emerge of like, well, the Shias are this and the Sunnis are that. And um, I'll give you an anecdote. I literally got a paper rejected because it was I used a, a Shia subsample and the reviewer was like, Shias are not Muslim. So this paper cannot be accepted. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh yeah. my so, god. <laughs> You've got the best examples, man. Oh, you got the best academic story. Yeah, so like literally. And this stuff happens behind the scenes. You're like, like what the hell is this? Because you're literally trying to produce knowledge about a community. And like, this is the behind the scenes crap. Yeah. yeah. Honestly, it scares me so much how many gatekeepers there are. But yeah. just put. Just, Fucking racist. Like, oh. Well, see, when you're speaking to your respondents, right, yeah. one of the kind of markers that I found that people who lived up there, yeah. their, their Scottishness by it was how Scottish they sounded. It always struck me when I found, like, one black guy I knew, and he was he sounded so Scottish. Mm-hmm. And it was so, so... People reacted to him differently than, say, a guy who spoke, he, he was more of a kind of West Indian accent, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how Scottish you sounded, yeah. and, and I think he would play to it more. Yeah, to sound to sound more because that's Pe- that's Peter Hopkins' work. So Peter Hopkins um, done work in the early two thousands, um, looking at how um, I guess Pakistani youth particularly were seen as Scottish. So the the elements of Scottishness. Do you have the accent? Do you love shortbread? Do you drink iron brew? Are seen yeah, as I, like I, I, just, I associate <laughs> Pakistan. Yeah. I, I see a strong connection yeah. to Scottishness. To be honest, I think because when they moved from the north of England and these manufacturing towns course, to Scotland, yes, they okay. felt that Scotland was more welcoming at the time. And I think this is what I tell people. I'm like, well, you can have like one black person, one Asian person. No one's going to say nothing to you because you're just like, whatever, one is two is not a problem. Ten, not a problem. When you get to like a hundred, a thousand, that's sort of when you sort of notice, oh my God, there's so many of them. Where are they coming from? White flight. So, uh, White flight. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, East London, like just East London. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Example, like, people moving out of there. White flight, man. So it's not an issue because back then you've got like what, a group of like five people who look kind of strange they dress kind of strange they do kind of funny things but whatever we'll just leave them to their own device once you've got like 500 of them you can understand why elements of fear this idea of threat this idea of like intergroup can contact theory can we understand theory. though can we understand well, why they feel... Like, I don't know why people feel threatened. I think threatened. we're talking about, we're talking about how people respond to difference, yeah, aren't we? Yeah, 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 and they yeah. feel threatened because yeah. of a number of things, because yeah. of government policy, government rhetoric, the media, yeah. yeah. demonisation yeah. of Muslims, yeah. like all those things. So I think, I don't want to say we understand, but there's a number of factors which mean it's difficult... It's not difficult. It means I don't. People refuse to accept difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or want to it's reject this, it's difference. A, it's xenophobic attitude. It's xenophobic, yeah, yeah. yeah. But that fear, man, like... It's real, the it's fear, really, yeah, it's, but, it's, it's, a, it's not, a mad... but it's not based on anything that we've done. Well, I, I think it's problematic done. because, like, now 
we've got a generation which wants to assert their distinctiveness. We've got people who are like, well, I'm proud to be black. I'm proud to be Nigerian. Oh, yeah. I'm proud to be like a person of color. I'm proud to wear my hijab. Yet this is causing huge problems because literally these people That's are true. born and brought up here. They're like British. They have these British values, whatever you want to call them. Um, and they're feeling proud and they feel confident to assert themselves and who they're... Um, slash Britishness. So I can be Nigerian British, I can be black British, whatever have you. But then it becomes a problem because uh, to, I guess, the white British majority by saying, well, actually, no, I don't think that's what British is. I don't think this is. Well, why, how come you don't like pork pie? Like, what's going on? Like, and I think that, <laughs> like, <laughs> but, but I think, and this is where it comes back to the kind of overall yeah. theme of the, of, the sh- of the season. Yeah. If British population understood the legacies of empire. Yeah. You understand that I can be British and Nigerian. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, like, can be British and Nigerian. Yeah. And so, to, to be quintessential, so the tea, the drink, the, the drink, the British, the national drink tea. Yes, yeah. Is Indian, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, I don't know but, but no. you, once you understand. But it's Yorkshire. Yeah. So obviously, obviously made in Yorkshire, right? <laughs> That's what, where their tea comes from. So. <laughs> but once they understand that, they understand that the hybridity of the nation, yeah. the term yeah, yeah. British. Yeah, yeah, yeah. British means you come from yeah. everywhere. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. an internationalist. It's a globalist. Yeah. It's a globalist word. But right? like that example of before the 1981 Act, mm-hmm. um, people were actually British citizens. You could mm-hmm. be in Jamaica, you could be in East Africa, you were in India, Pakistan, you were still. Yeah. Uh, citizen British subject mm-hmm. and when they slowly um, I guess the Tory party sort of changed the rules in the 60s Enoch Powell all mm-hmm. that sort of stuff we narrow the definition slowly 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 and now we're even narrowing the definition as you saw on the weekend well it doesn't matter that they are British nationals we're just deport them anyway yeah. like this uh, this idea of, it doesn't like, matter that she was born in this country yeah, yeah. her grandparents from Bangladesh but yeah so she exactly yeah, yeah. yeah. But it, it goes back to the idea it's, it's contingent on how they feel yeah so you can be other at any point and it could be any group yeah who could be the out group mm. and which is quite scary so it I think it gives them that kind of feeling of power again where before I think they could decide right but right now this idea that like, people are asserting themselves yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and I think yeah. it's frightening for them it is very frightening and I think what they then tend to do is rely on stereotypes so you guys obviously are familiar with this stereotype of like the Asian man who's a sex gang and Wuthering and blah 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 it just perpetuates yeah I'm sure we don't talk about white pedophiles do we like the same oh, we don't generalise like all that so sort of hard. stuff so it's just you you create stereotypes you marginalise the population you put them in ghettos and then you wonder why they're experiencing such economic adversity like it's just it, like it's common sense to me that it's just you're not giving them jobs I, I think one of the things I wanted to problematize is this aspect of we talk about resilience so if you look at the academic discourse it says that um, because a lot of the Pakistani population of Muslims are have their own businesses they're seen to be economically resilient because they're economically independent and I think Khadija Al-Sayal um, problematizes this and I'd agree with her by saying well actually what's the reason why they're owning their own jobs is because maybe maybe they're highly educated they got degrees they got bachelors they got masters but maybe they just can't find mainstream jobs nobody's hiring them that's why you kind of open your own business to be economically independent you're not worrying about you're not going to get a paycheck you don't want to be on the dole um, so you actually open your own business it's not about economic resilience it's about you being pushed out of the economic mainstream and I think that this idea of criticality is not even there that was brilliant oh, thank you that was powerful that was powerful and a brilliant brilliant place to end yeah. thank you so much uh, for thank you guys for us. Um, we're going to get the you've quoted so much research yeah. in this episode so we're yeah. going to put it in, we're going to send it Listen, we're put it in the episode when's now. your paper done man when's it done I need to read this man the, the PhD yeah oh, God, I'm helping. <laughs> like I've got another because like, I'm part time so yeah. it's yeah. going to be like another year or two years bro, to that's go, so, sick yeah. that's sick yeah. it's great it's great work really amazing work thank you so much for joining us guys thank you Thank you.
Thank you for listening to Surviving Society. Please support the podcast by rating, following and subscribing on your preferred podcast platform. And please consider supporting the production of the podcast by joining our Patreon community. 